Let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life this day and for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass and your words to us. Um, you speak directly to us. Um, tough reminders. Um, what a help you are. The world won't give us your help. Um, it can't. But um, we see how foolish we can be, that we want to be like other nations. God, to see our nation now and to think how terribly like other nations we are is a sadness to behold. Um, and your, the sternness behind your warnings about old things, an old wineskin, old wine. Um, the reading earlier, um, a few days ago, I think, was the Cana wedding in which uh, Mary called you out. Um, it wasn't part of your plan, and suddenly your mother says something to you, and a whole divine order comes into play. Um, and what you did was amazing, just truly amazing. If we hear the Gospels and aren't amazed, I think there's something wrong with us. You turn water into wine. It was the best wine of all. How could it not be when it's divine? Strengthen us in our capacity for wonder. Help us to hear your words in wonder genuinely and take them seriously. Um, particularly the hard parts that are easy to pass over, that are stern warnings for us to take some things seriously. I ask for a special blessing tonight um, for Mary, um, Pat's friend, or one of our parishioners, fellow parishioners. Receive her into your kingdom, please forgive her her sins. Let our prayers help if she has time in purgatory. Um, um, help her to take a joy. It's been my position all along that we should be living as if we're in purgatory, that we have a work to do with the church. The, the church is here for that. Strengthen us in our efforts to be glad. Um, help us to join Mary in our efforts to um, answer her sins, cleanse them, and um, to look forward to the moment of greeting you in joy, being in your presence. Um, glad finally to see you and to be with her friends and her family, all of her, all of those who went before her. Let Pat's heart be consoled. Um, she brought this to our attention, so she carries you. Ask for a um, special blessing too on Barbara's um, brother-in-law, or no, her brother. Brother-in-law. Law. Um, let um, um, let his sins wash away his sins as well. Let our prayers help if there's a time in purgatory. Um, one of your key passages, the one one of them that I'll read tonight is, um, it's impossible for most of us here to pass through the eye of a needle. That's how difficult it is to get into heaven. Um, we should be careful about priding ourselves in what we're doing. Rich man can't do it, and I'm assuming there are others. Um, but you make it clear that what's impossible for us is not for you. So forgive him his sins. Mm. 
let him enter into purgatory with joy um, let our prayers bring him there if he's not and um, take a joy in discovering what there isn't a joy we're asked to take in our struggles here and um, help bring him to a point also of um, coming before you and taking a joy in seeing you and all those who've gone before so watch over those two people please and over us in our efforts most especially help us not to take our faith for granted this is one of the troubling themes tonight that we'll see in the readings that we'll go over we offer these prayers in your name Christ our Lord Amen Amen Okay, let me just pick up with um, Elliot, and I want to get to the, I owe you guys so much time. Pat King, if you ever come on and ask me about a class folder again, you come on 10 minutes early so we can, we can clear this. You Anyway, call me. Cause oh, I, I, don't, don't put that on me. Oh, I, I've been absolutely yeah. clear. Right. <laughs> um, Anyway, I, I, I mean, Pat, you're coming in late, and everybody's been struggling with these things for years. So, but if you have questions, don't hesitate to write because some of this. I mean, the, it, it's supposed to be simple, but I don't think anything on the web is simple. So, but I hope I hope you got to on that site on both sites on C's and Francis. There's a section with poems for all of us, and we've been reading from um, Eliot's. Poor quartet, so you can you can also print off East Cork Coker, but I want to go to the the third section now in East Coker. Remember that in Bert Norton, Eliot's dealing with a still point that there is this center to everything that goes on in the world. It could be in a dance, it could be in a stairway, it does not matter. We could not walk, we could not keep our balance if there were not a center. The scientists will call it gravity. That's a partial grasp of what's there. Somebody who sees more fully would see there's an order to the universe with you at the center of it, with God at the center of it. And it's only by virtue of that center that all of us can keep our balance, especially the church. The church has a special difficulty because it's got to deal with the insanity of all the things that go on around it. Inside the church, and we all know that what's going on in the inside of the church is often <laughs> more insane than what goes on outside of it. Um... Eliot was dealing with that still point, in a, and he rendered it, I think, beautifully in a, in a way that relates us to our concrete world. In the second poem, um, Little Gidding, he's dealing with um, things that come into being and pass away. So that even the fact that there are seasons, fall, winter, spring, summer, repeated cyclically over and over and over again implies a still point otherwise how can they repeat around what are they circling if it's not around a still point so we're back to Boethius's circle Pat you weren't there but at the center of the the work um, constellation of philosophy Boethius uses this image of a circle with a still point at the center and everything on the circumference is whirling so people get caught up in it but at the still point um, you're with God it's quiet. You see larger holes. So it's like the blindness has been removed and it gives us a different perspective on the world that most people have. 
So the closer you approach that still point, the closer you are to God, the closer you are we are to losing our blindness. And the larger holds we see, we see that there's so much more going on than we saw when we were away from the center, when we were more blind. Um, in in Little Gidding, I mean, in the second poem, East Coker, Eliot's dealing with things coming into being, passing away, and often with things passing away. So into the world and life, and then passing into dark. And in, si- in third section, he begins, he picks up um, with the ending of the second section. You remember it goes, the houses are all gone under the sea, the dancers are all gone under the hill. That means all those, all those things that we built are gone, they passed away. All of us dancing, all of the movements we had are now gone. We've gone under the hill. So things come and go. Um, and he begins section three, picking up where he left off in two. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant. The captains, merchant bangers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors. What he's naming is all those people who have this sense of self-importance because of their stands in the world. He could have included Christians in whatever positions they take. But he's describing all of these people who have this sense of control and power. Chairman of many committees, industrial lords, and petty contractors all go into the dark. And dark the sun and moon and the almanac of Gotha and the stock exchange gazette, the directory of directors, and cold the sense and lost the motion of action. We all go with them into the silent funeral. Nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement in darkness on darkness. We all know that the hills and trees, the distant panorama, and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Everything is passing. All the things that we take for granted in life right now, whatever they are, are all passing into the darkness. Are all being rolled away, or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations, and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when, under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, Be still, and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt this for a second. The background for this part of his poem is um, St. John's The Dark Night of the Soul. 
And what he's doing is showing the entrance into the mystical vision, the grasping of God, is conditioned on our giving up everything in the world. And I think one of the reasons Eliot is, is landing on faith, hope, and charity is because in this world, too often, particularly with Christians, because we take these things more seriously than... It's going to speak to our gospel tonight when we're reading in, in Matthew. We'll get there in a minute. Too many of us have faith in the wrong thing. We have hope in the wrong thing. We love the wrong thing or in the wrong way. Um, you know, we, um, we have faith that we'll get what we want or hope for. And you know that I've said this before from our tradition that... Um, Hope isn't real until there's no reason for hoping. Faith isn't real until there's no reason for having faith. Love is not real until we have no reason for loving. Because those three virtues, faith, hope, and charity, are supernatural virtues. They are given to us when we have no reason anymore for holding on to them. To love a person when we have no reason to love that person. To have faith in God when we have no reason or hoping for something when we... Those are supernatural virtues. So he's, he's going to the depths of our Christian tradition, reminding us that it's not until we, um, in a sense, enter the darkness that we'll be able to come out with the faith, hope, and charity that we should have. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith. But the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing, whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden. Remember that takes us back to the first the opening of Burton Norton, and the voices take us into the garden. The laughter in the garden echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. You say I'm repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy, pain or suffering or the cross. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance, to admit that we don't know. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. We give up everything, let go of everything. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own, and where you are is where you are not. That's the apophatic again. Remember, it's, it's been what I've been calling our attention to all along. When we take the Eucharist, where are we? When we're on our way to the parking lot, um, do we, are we aware that while we're on our way to the car, we're also in God's kingdom? Where is that place? Are we there, or are we just on the way to the car? Where are we? These are the mysteries of our of our faith. So, okay, let me let me let's start with Matthew because there's a, a lot that I want to get to here, so we can 
we're not going to finish Matthew tonight. And by the way, let, let, me, let me apologize open just openly here. It's been interesting for me to do Matthew with you guys because you know that I've never done this before. I, I, I'm going out on a limb and doing this. and But I, I, I'm just aware the last couple of nights or last couple of meetings I've been squeezing things in um, because it's just, I think some of you have a sense of how hard I work at this and how much harder I probably make it than I should. But there's a lot going on in the gospel and I've taken it seriously. Um, uh, so we've been over time. I do not want to be over time tonight. I really want to keep within our... Um, but it's been a strange experience for me because you know that mostly when we do literature, I'm going over something that I know pretty well and that you don't. And it's been strange for me because going over Matthew, I'm going over what I know all of you know well. You've been you've raised on it. You've been hearing the Gospels forever. I hope some of the things that we've been talking about sheds a, something of a new light on what we've been reading. But anyway, I'm just aware of that. And so I just apologize for the looseness of the last couple of classes. But I hope I confirm this up tonight. One question that I wanted to, I've got, if you've looked at the notes, you know that I've got a couple of questions there. Um, and I want to include on it something that I didn't, and I'll get to the questions in a second. I think I wrote this to you in your emails, but I can't, I can't remember. I asked everybody if, after our class last week, if you had any questions um, from your hearing of the Gospels, because you're used to hearing it you know, over the course of your life. Do you have any questions on path passages in Matthew that have left you troubling? And if you do, I'd like you to hold them to the end of class when we step back from the readings and tackle these questions. But I really am serious about that. I'd like to hear if, if something in Mas Matthew has struck you and you've not always perfectly understood it, so we can take some time with it tonight. I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'll be able to answer. Maybe all of us together can offer a light on it, but at least I'd like to hear those questions. So hold that question in, in your, on your mind, okay? Here are the questions, and these are very, very serious to me. I wouldn't ask these when we we're doing literature, because you know that I've been trying to step back from a catechetical perspective in most of what we've done, even though we always end a work asking, I, I'm with me asking you, is Christ in this work? Where do we see him? Because one of the aims of this course has been, we go to church, but when we leave church and we go outside the, an ecclesial world, when we step outside of that world, are we really as aware of Christ in the world as we should be? Or do we take it for granted so we live in this black-white world? We go to church and worship, but we go outside and we're not aware of Christ. One of the reasons for doing this literature is that we're always in a world outside church. The Iliad, the Odyssey, Shakespeare, Fox, you can go where you want. We're always in the world. And the question that I've been asking all along is, is Christ here? Is God at work? Now, we're dealing with God speaking to us directly. So I'm <laughs> more directly in a catechetical position than I generally am through the course, so I want to take that seriously. So here are my questions, and I'm asking these with more seriousness than I can say. I don't want to answer them right now. I would just like you to 
have them in mind as we go through the class tonight, okay? When we get to the end, I'm glad for anybody to pick them up and answer them. But right now, here are my questions. In addition to the one I just asked, is there some passage that you've struggled with? Can, can we take a minute with it? Here are my questions. How well do we read Scripture? It's a miracle. It's the living word passed on to us. In itself, it's a miracle. We believe when we enter church, this is, the Protestant world does not believe this. We believe that our church is Christ, the mystical body on earth. That's our belief as Catholic. That's not verbal. That's a fundamental fact of our faith. The church is Christ. Um, so when you enter the church, everything about the church tries to embody him. All, everything that goes on at the center of the Mass, as you know, is the Eucharist and all the sacraments. But every Mass we hear scripture. We hear God talking to us. Do we hear him speaking to us directly? Does the speaker get in the way? Do we let the speaker get in the way? Do we actually hear God speaking to us? I'm claiming that that's a miracle that God is speaking to us directly over time. In that moment, he's present to us speaking. Do we hear him? That's real for me. As real as the sacrament. Because you know, first part of the liturgy, the liturgy of the word. Second part of the liturgy is the Eucharist. It's Christ embodied. He's there in both instances. How well do we read scripture? How well do we hear him? Do we really feel that a miracle is taking place? Or are we just taking things for granted and going to church the way we do? That's the first question. Second question is really serious as well. St. Paul describes the Jews in this way. He says, a veil has fallen over the Jews. They were God's chosen people. He called them out for a special mission. It was a lead finally to the Messiah and um, a call to take God to the rest of the world. That was God's mission. Paul says of the Jews quite clearly that a veil has fallen over them, that something has come between them and God's call to them. So here's my question, and I'm asking this seriously. Has a veil fallen over us? Are we going through the motion the way the Jews did with our faith? That's not a rhetorical question. You know that I wouldn't ask it if I didn't believe it were partly true. Because I think a veil has fallen over us. So, is that veil there? Where is it? Do we recognize it? Not just in others, in ourselves. How strong is our faith? Matthew, in Matthew, remember, a man comes up to Christ, and he's really frustrated, and Christ gets upset with him. He says, and he, he said this a number of times to his disciples. Do I have to put up with this? Oh, you have a little faith. And he says, if you had the faith that you should, you'd be able to move mountains. I'm asking this more seriously than I can say. I mean, this stuff is upsetting me about myself. Where are we on our faith? Is our faith strong enough to move mountains? Do we really believe with our sins or the faults that we carry, all of us do? That if our faith were stronger, we'd be healed. Do we live that life, believing in what we believe comes to us through the sacraments? Christ is healing. He's taking away all the obnoxious things in our characters. 
and healiness? Or are we still accommodating to the world, giving into the world, carrying on? And So where are we with our faith? Number four, do we take the kingdom as seriously as we should? So much, so many of the parables in Matthew have to do with the kingdom. Christ is constantly saying, God, he's constantly saying, the kingdom is like this again and again and again and again. And Mark, I wanted to, I just don't want to miss an opening here. You, you know, you were commenting last week that we should accept Christ and, and I hope you know there's no disagreement on that, but but one of the points that I was making last week, and I'm going to make again tonight, is Christ works really hard at trying to help his disciples understand. Because they don't understand very well. They think they do, and they don't. One of the things Christ is doing in the Gospels is teaching us. He's, um, the, the question should be, are we open to learning? Or because we're Catholics, we think we already know. Do we really hear him teaching us? Are we open when we hear the gospel being read to us? Are we applying it to ourselves? Are we learning? Are we receiving him teaching us? Um, do we take the kingdom seriously? Or, or have Calvinist in the South, which is a real thing, Calvinist views, fundamentalist views, black-white views? How much have they influenced the Catholic mind in America, and particularly in the South? because we live in a very religious area, it's deeply religious, are we sufficiently aware of the differences between Calvinist fundamentalist views and our faith? Because a lot should be going on with us that will not go on with a fundamentalist. Um, do we take the kingdom as seriously? Do we hear him describing it, taking it, learning, under, understanding what he's saying? Remember when we read Boethius together, when he gave us that image, he said, the, the, the turning point in his argument, there is no bad fortune. None. That's Catholic. It's not Protestant. It's not Jewish. It's not Islamic. There is no bad fortune. None. None. Our God is a good God. Evil is a privation. It's not a real thing. It's a privation. God is doing everything he can at every point in his present, there's no past and future for him, turning the stupid things we do into good. Do we feel that in our hearts? Do we see it? When people die, are we... <laughs> we make a place for sorrow. Are we sufficiently glad, trusting in God, or hoping the way we should hope, the church says almost every Mass, be everywhere, and this is the church. This is Christ, if the church is him. Our faith is that it's him. The church says, be everywhere and always thankful. Are we glad, particularly when they're suffering? The martyrs enter into suffering glad to be with Christ. Do we? Are we glad? Do we bring that because God allows this, these, you know, evil in the world, partly to test us, to help us get better. Are we grateful? Are we glad? And finally, do we take hell as seriously as we should? I'm going to read passages through Mark or Matthew. He makes it really clear that hell is real. The modern world denies miracles and it denies hell. 
All of these things are outside of a scientific, empirical way of looking at the world. At the center of the gospel is the belief in the kingdom. Christ came to help people return to it. And he's warning people against the or the option of what happens if they don't. Hell is real. Or do we take that seriously enough? We, if we're Calvinists or Lutherans, we can get gloomy. Because they believe we exist in a state of depravity. Catholics do not. We believe we're fallen, wounded, but we are not depraved. The modern world takes away... Yeah. Um, are we honest, genuinely honest about the reality of hell and its dangers to us, to those around us, and maybe particularly those we love? Or do we want to deny it, put it out of the way, because it, it, it makes our life too difficult, particularly with people we love, say. So those are my opening questions. I'd like all of you to hold on to them. Do we read scripture well? Um, is a veil fallen over us? Um, where are we with our faith? Do we take the kingdom seriously? Do we take hell seriously? Hold on to those questions, would you? When we get to the end, I'd like to look at our passages and come back to these questions and go wherever you guys would like to go. Okay? Just a, um, a, a quick review of the background. The, the, the point that I've wanted to insist on since the beginning is that we don't read Scripture well most of us, for a number of reasons. The Reformation changed the way we read Scripture. Zwingli, Huss, Calvin, Luther, all of them made reading the Bible a private matter. They, they raised our personal experience with God above everything else so that any private view that one holds it could be greater than the objectivity of Scripture, the, the reality of it. <coughs> so the Reformation introduced into our modern mindset a relativistic and subjective quality. Truth is relative, we can make it what we want. Truth is subjective, it's whatever we want it to be. The Catholic Church stands outside of that world because it says that's not so. That Christ has an objective reality. Do we see it? Do we give ourselves to it? Um, so, hold on, sorry. I'm, what am I doing here? Mute. Um, the Copernican Revolution, the scientific revolution, added another problem. Because with the changes that Copernican introduced to the world, people questioned all authorities. Everybody was wrong. Everybody believed in the Ptolemaic scheme of the universe, and Copernicus showed that it was wrong. So the Renaissance was that time when everybody began to question authority and what was true. It was a time of tremendous skepticism. You know we've been through this. Shakespeare wrote at that time. And it's so clear that he, more than probably anybody who's ever written, he was able to go to the depth of characters and, and look into the struggles that people had while still affirming the place of miracles in our life. I think almost every Shakespeare play we've read has contained a miracle. But the, but the Copernican Revolution introduced a, a way of looking that is, that's had effects that are still with us. And one of them is that um, only, this is one of the effects of the scientific revolution, only matter is real. Only matter. 
There is no other life. There is no spiritual world. There is no heaven. You can't prove that by science, so it's unreal. Only matter is real, and it means that most of the people, the, the biblical scholars who did their research on, on the Bible, tended to be reductive in their reading. They tended to, to, to give it a secularized reading, to explain away the miracles, to find a way of giving an explanation to them that didn't make a place for them because miracles aren't real. So one of the effects of the, of the scientific revolution was to widen this gap between faith and reason. And I've pushed since the beginning that one of the great challenges for us as Catholics, and too many Catholics take it for granted, that we are called to struggle to bring faith and reason together. John Paul's encyclical Fide Ratio speaks to that probably more, more pointedly than any modern encyclical that I know, but Fide Ratio is a reminder that that's our faith. We're not fundamentalists. The fundamentalist degrades reason. It leaves us in a black-white situation. Reason's a great thing. The greatest philosophers of our modern world, Jacques Maritain is one of them, did everything he did on the basis of reason. But he did it in a way that acknowledged that there was something beyond reason and kept the door between those two worlds open. But the biblical scholarship has influenced the way we read. For Freud, the Bible is a form of compensation. It's not real. That all these other things are ways we have of overcoming the bad things in us that we can't deal with. Freud didn't believe in the Bible. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in free will. He did not believe in free will. All these things are determined. We're left with all these sexual perversities. Um... <clears throat> Marx believed that um, religion was the opiate of the masses. It was a drug. So the modern educated world has grown up thinking that anybody who reads the Bible and takes it seriously is uneducated, backwards, superstitious, non-progressive. And I'm trusting that, I don't, I don't want to go into this, I'm trusting that all of you know that one of the, one of the great divides in the modern America, which has widened, is between conservatives and progressives. That the progressives look at Christians as backward and bigoted and prejudiced and narrow-minded and and I think there's lots of things that Christians do to deserve that. Can we work to bring faith and reason together and not get caught up in this black-white way of looking at the world so that we contribute to the widening of the schism? The, ch the call of the church is to bring faith and reason together. Are we doing what we can to close that gap? Um, so those are some of the some of the problems that we have to be aware of when we're dealing with scripture. Um, and I've maintained from the beginning that that we face a danger, and it's important for us to be aware of it because if we're not, we fall into one of these traps. That's my contention. You may disagree with me, but there's good evidence for that. Um, the contention that I made from the beginning is that the Bible is the Word of God. It is He is speaking directly to us. 
the prophets are speaking his words. When we hear the Bible, we are hearing God speak to us. This is not literature. And I've insisted from the beginning, we cannot read it the way the scientists do when they explain everything away, and we can't read it as a work of literature, which is where we've been for the six or seven years we've been together. We have to read it on its own terms. This is God. So whether he's using narrative, or whether we're in getting history or parables, we, we have to begin trusting that this is God's words. If that's so, and here's, I'm sorry Fred isn't here. If that's so, it means that's the word of God. Remember, a scientist begins with something in front of him that he wants to prove is true. Science, Thomas calls theology a science because he begins with the word of God and there can be nothing more true than God's word. It's on the basis of that premise that you can lead to conclusions. That's why he calls it a science. Do people begin understanding that this is God's word? That there's nothing greater than it, nothing more true? That's why the church took so much pains to decide which works were canonical and which were apocryphal, which were false. And it's also why they've, one of the reasons they've um, distinguished the heretics. Because the heretics will make of scripture something it's not. Either this is the word of God and it is him speaking and we accept that as our premise and we begin to reason from that or we can make scripture into whatever we want. One of the reasons the Protestant church keeps fragmenting is because they keep disagreeing on what that scripture means, who Christ is, what's going on. The unity of the church rests partly on our understanding of scripture. The magisterium has that responsibility to hold that together. So, we're not to read it like scientific treaties, and we're not to read it like literature. It's not just a work of literature, even though it has literary qualities. It's the Word of God. Now, let me stop. All of that's just by way of review. I want to I go over what I think are the major themes and go to go to actual passages to try to pull this together before we go on. So this is going to be really important in my mind. But before we do, that's all review. Any anybody have questions on the review, the background, or what we need to be careful of and what we need to be guarded about, what we need to be aware of? Any any questions or challenges or disagreements or Anything from you guys? Pat, I'd be glad to hear from you because um, I know you're coming in sort of strange and, and this probably is new to you, and I guess. I'm not sure how you're finding this, but do you have, you have any questions or comments? or? No, not really. Just reading your notes and following what you're saying. Barbara, you look like you're, you've got um, something. <laughs> well... I've been reading, um, usually I read the gospel in a, in a Bible, but this <laughs> book that I've been reading has a lot of notes in it, and I noticed that a lot of things that I took one way can be explained in a totally different way and makes more sense when I read the footnotes. And so when we're at Mass, unless Father really gives a sermon on on that gospel or that epistle or whatever, 
we don't get much depth. We get whatever we're going to get that day. Right. And then at the end of the day, a lot of times we don't remember. Right. But right. Um, right. looking at the notes and the things that people have read or have written about the Gospels really has made a difference. Oh, me. good. Yeah, I'm really glad. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, all I can say, Barbara's good. I would just, I mean, you know from my opening notes for the last three weeks now, I would just say be careful. I, I mean, I'm trusting you here that um, it's like walking a minefield. You know, you, you well, truly, you know, you just, I, the, the modern world is so rationalistic. It's habitist, skeptical, and private, and, you know, people just have lots of different ways of reading the Bible, and we have to, be careful, and, and I, there are times when the church has made mistakes, you know. But, but still, I mean, its responsibility is to try to hold on to. You, you all know this. I, I know Mark's. Got, popes have made <laughs> radical, kind. I mean, done stupid, stupid things. So, wait, wait, wait! I don't want to go there. We, we just have to be careful. So all I'm, all I'm saying to you is, I'm personally, I'm glad for what you're doing. Just, just take some care. That's. All I can say, I'm glad you're doing it. I wish more people were, but it's a minefield today. Genuinely a minefield. Um, I'm, I'm reading a book right now by, a, by somebody who's in the sciences who's trying to connect theology and science, and I'm just appalled, absolutely appalled at what I'm reading. Um, you just have to take care. This is God. It's a, you know, I, who the philosopher of fear and trembling with Schopenhauer, I can't remember fear and trembling. But anyway, let's start. The Gospel of Matthew. I'm I'm gonna make it on time tonight. Just know that in advance, because I owe you guys. Um, How much money you want to put on it, Bob? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Mark just threw down the glove. I'm taking off my shirt. How much money, Mark? I just want somebody around to collect for Mark when we're done tonight. I just need to know what the definition of on time is. There you go. <laughs> 8, 8.35. I mean, 8.30 is the time, but I give myself a few minutes. Five minutes, Grace. Okay. I'm, I'm so embarrassed. What I, anyway, I'm just... Mark, I'm not going to take your bet, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad for the put down the humiliation that you just put me under because... <laughs> Oh, no, 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 I, I, love, I love your class, but, but I do understand. No, just... Yeah. Time, time, you're a literature person, you're not a technical time... Get out of here, get out of here, go away. <laughs> here, come on, let's start, let's start. Um, major themes. Christ came, I want to cover, I want to outline what I believe are the major themes of Matthew. And to make that clear, I'm going to hit a number of things, and then I'm going to go to those passages... If any of you, when we're done with this, thinks I've left left something out, hit it. Just tell me. But I think I've I think I've covered Matthew fairly thoroughly here. So let's let's see what you guys think. Why did Christ come? Why is Matthew? He's only writing this because Christ came to bring something to us. You'd all agree with that, yeah? There's no other reason for writing this. He and the other gospel writers have written this because they want to hold on to something that would be with us after Christ left, after he died. He left the Holy Spirit to help us with our work in, the, in Scripture, 
But they wrote scripture trusting that, it, that those people who weren't alive when Christ was present or who were outside of that small um, Judaic world would learn about him. So the scriptures were written because script words aren't confined in time and space. They can be read everywhere. They could be taken to the east, they could be taken to other continents, and they would outlast time. They would, they would survive Christ's life. So the Gospels were written to bring Christ to us. That's why the Protestants and the Catholics make so much of the Gospel. The Protestants go farther by saying, sola scriptura. We've already gone through this. It's not scripture alone, because the tradition had already existed before scripture was written, or it would never have been written. All of the Gospels were written from 60 to 90 A.D., well after Christ's death. The traditions were already underway. They wrote out of them, trying to hold on. And we know from our discussions that lots, lots was being written. That's why Luke says, hold on to this. That's why Luke says, I'm writing to try to straighten things out. That's the opening of Luke. That's the authority on which Luke bases his gospel. That authority. He's writing to straighten other people out because there's so much being written about Christ that doesn't make sense. That's how wild it is. Wait, by the way, I hope everybody sees this. Why does Christ keep saying to people after he heals them, go and tell nobody? Why does he say that? Because he knows with a religious imagination, people are going to go away and say all sorts of crazy things. People will make crazy things out of what he's done. That's just what people do. He said over and over and over again, don't tell anybody. So there are all these wild accounts being given about Christ. That's why the church had to take such pains to determine what was canonical. The, our understanding is that was the work of the Holy Spirit. It's still the Word of God. This is God. I just can't stress this enough. It's the Word of God. This is God speaking to us. The other stuff is not. It's apocryphal. It's got flaws in it. So Matthew is writing to bring us Christ, a living word. It's God's word living. If we don't see it that way, we're missing something. Why did Christ come? He came for a number of reasons. For sinners to heal, to preach, to make people aware of the Father and his kingdom, and to make people aware that there were consequences to denying him. Hell. Those are the principal reasons. The first thing he does when he comes out is say, repent. Following John, he calls people to repentance. Uh. I'm going to go through some of the passages now to reinforce um, or to elaborate on this and to, to make clear um, um, why he came and what he's doing. Did, sorry, Mark, did you have a question or something? Sorry. I guess isn't... I mean, there's, there's a practical reason the Gospels were written, which was people saw something so amazing they had to let everybody know. Right? Which is what Christ was. And the second thing, I think, is why does... Why did Jesus come? It's it's God's fulfillment of his covenant. And I mean that's that's 
I think the primary reason, and that's you know the nice way of saying because God wanted to. Yeah, right. right. Yes. I mean, he's fulfilling his covenant with us that goes all the way back. Right. Right. To whatever Adam and Eve may have been. Yeah. Yes. Yes. To that. And it's it's one of the things that the gospel writers are aware of: Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them. Um. Go to nine. Chapter nine, verse. What I'm going to do is touch on some of the reasons why Christ came. Mark's absolutely right in what he said for a change. Okay. Chapter 9, verses 10. Um, Love the clock, Mark. Pat, would you not join with it? Do I have to put the now? I have to deal with the two of you teaming up. You guys bring I, it on. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I muted myself. <laughs> did, did you see that, Doc? Mark's got a car. <laughs> oh, God bless your soul. What's he, got? <laughs> he put up a big card that's showing running time, so it's oh. now fifty-nine point three, <laughs> fifty-nine point, fifty-eight point. Mark, put that damn thing away. Um, you just want to get your money, and so you're going to do everything you can to sabotage this class. Chapter 9, um, verses 10 to 13. Um, the people have seen that Christ um, called out Matthew, and he's been spending time with sinners. Um, in, in verse 10 it says, As he sat at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Um, but when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for that I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He's in one sense echoing what we heard in the Old Testament when, when God, his Father... By the way, I just want to stress this, because I just think the fundamentalist world has pushed a wedge between Christ and his Father. I'm trusting everybody sees that. Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son. He's the image of the Father. He would have done nothing to abrogate the law, to undermine the law of his Father. The Father gave the Ten Commandments. I'll make it clear in a while... Christ did nothing, nothing to undermine the law. He says, I came to fulfill it. What he doesn't hold himself to are the 600 accretions that the Jews have added on their own. Those things are of their making, not God's. And Christ is really clear about that. He repeatedly makes clear we are to follow his Father's commandments. Here he's saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The Father said, I don't want sacrifice, I want contrite hearts. Everything Christ is doing is to help people feel the contrition for their sins and not to despair, not to act like they're saved because they're following the law, not to act like they're saved because they're following the law, 
Um, but to have hearts of contrition, to know they need God. He came for sinners. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Go to 10, chapter 10, passages 5. He says, this is really interesting because some critics are going to call this out as one of the con contradictions. They're going to be one of the arguments why they disbelieve in Christ, why they deny the gospel. Um, chapter 10, these 12 Jesus sent out charging. This is when he pulls the disciples together and gives them their first commission. This is amazing. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the... But go rather... Wait. No town of the go, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. He's saying don't go to any of the outlying places. The other people confine yourself to the house of Israel, to the chosen ones. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came for the Israelites who had turned away from God. He's going specifically to the chosen ones. And preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay. He gives them their instructions. They are not to go to these other places. They are to go to try to save Israel, God's children. St. Paul will reinforce that when he says in his writings, salvation is from the Jews. Something is going to happen involving the Jews. Salvation waits on it. Christ came for his people. Now I'm going to come to something we'll, that will change this a little bit, but at least hold on to that now. <clears throat> In fact, let's look at it here. Go to 15, um, chapter 15, lines 21. Um, he's been trying to explain things. He's trying to help his disciples understand. One of the most important things to take from this gospel are the efforts that Christ makes to help people understand. He's a teacher. Um, the greater part of his efforts outside of healing people is to help his disciples because he knows he knows um, sorry some, he knows um, that if he do, if his disciples don't understand what he's doing, the beginnings of the church will will not be good. These will be the first ministers of the church, the, the priesthood. It's absolutely crucial that they understand what they're doing. So again, it's, um, we're not challenging Christ. We're trying to understand um, when the disciples themselves are struggling to understand. It's part of what we should be doing according to our faith. So he says in chapter 15, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and so passes on? He's, uh, you can sense this sense of impatience or surprise that his disciples just aren't getting some things. In verse 21, And the Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This Sidon, these are outside of Judah. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. He didn't answer. 
And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's bread, that is, i.e., God's children from the house of Israel. It's not fair to take the bread away from them. That's why he came. Um... And throw it to the dogs, to all those outside the chosen people's house. She said, yes, Lord. This is stunning. I mean, this question of faith that I put to you earlier. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Can you imagine anybody in among the chosen saying that? They go around thinking they're the saved. This woman knows she's outside of that. She has a humility that Christ hasn't heard in the Israelites. Yes, Lord, even the, the humility of this woman. God, again, I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to be hitting you guys. You, you might click off right now and save yourselves. Um, has, the veil, has the veil fallen over us that fell over the Jews? Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fell from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So it's interesting to see that Christ came and suddenly the plight of this individual person, this woman whose daughter has demons, comes to him with a humility that I'm, I'm not aware the Jews having shown him to this point. And it's as if it shifts his mission, that, that it has expanded, opened now to include people outside, the chosen people. Um, go to 12, go back to 12, line 21, 20, or sorry, 50. Um... Um, so he makes a contrast between the children, the, the, the Jews, and the dogs. Um, the old covenant, the new covenant. 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest, but he finds none. Then he says, I will return. You know that when he comes back, he brings more spirits with it. Um, so shall it be also with this evil generation, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood outside, <clears throat> wanting to speak to him. He replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and my brethren? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Um, those who follow him, will be with him, whatever their race. Um, um, let's see. Um, give me a second here. And 19, chapter 19. 
The Pharisees come to try to trap Jesus, and they remember they ask him about divorce because the Pharisees have allowed divorce, and um, he tells them that what God has joined, man can't separate. Um, that's why the church takes marriage and divorce so seriously. But, and I just I want to underscore this. The church does not forbid divorce. I mean, the Catholic Church gets a bad rap. The church does not forbid divorce. Um, the church looks at marriage as taking place with Christ in him, and it understands that man can't separate what God has joined. So um, the church allows annulments, but it's through the church's choice. It's its will. So people just can't break a divorce casually. If they, if, they, if they get an annulment through the church, they have it with Christ's blessing because the church recognizes that some marriages should be dissolved. So they try to trick him. Um, and Christ is, again, a little bit irritated. He says, let those who hear it, hear it. Um, about line 19, verse 16, Behold, one came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do? Christ says, um, um, if you would enter life, because he says, what I followed, you know, I do all that I should. Christ says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Um, he said to him, which, and disease said, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors. He goes on and on. I just want to underscore this because the Protestant mind tends to take the first two commandments from that passage where he says the two most important. But here, quite clearly, he's saying, follow the Father's commandments. All of them. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor. You, shan't, you, sh can't, you shouldn't kill. You shouldn't commit adultery. Um, and there's that other um, passage... Um, Sorry, hold on. We looked at it last week. Um, remember when he says, I can't, I'm losing it right now. If you can find it, I'd be grateful for it. But remember, he, he is stern with the Pharisees because they are um, trying to test him again. And he says to them, you... You're asked to honor your father. It's really interesting because he does this twice. You're that I, it's just it's it's why I spent so much time at the end that I did last week talking about the relationship between Christ and and parents and the relationship between parents and their children because he makes it clear that he came to divide families. The guy wants to go back and bury his father, and Christ is adamant and saying, "Step away, step away." And yet he, he makes clear that we're to honor our fathers and mothers. That's a commandment of God. Whether we want to or not doesn't matter. And he, he talks to the Jews in that one passage where he says, you're asked to honor your father and mother, and yet you make these traditions, and you say, you give these things, you take them to the altar, and you say, this is in place of honoring my father and mother. And he says, you make your human traditions greater than God's love. Can you find that, Doc? I, I, um, you all remember what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry I've lost it, but, but 
twice he, t he, he uses the same context of, of the Jews, particularly with respect to fathers and mothers, replacing something that they've created that keeps them from honoring their fathers and mothers, replacing that with, um, or putting that in place of the commandment. So repeatedly he keeps making it clear that humans are to follow the commandments. If you go to the Catholic Catechism, the commandments occupy a central place in it. Because the church is quite clear. Those commandments came from God. Christ is God. He's the Son of the Father. He would never, never undermine or abrogate his Father's laws. There's an antinomian against the law, against reason element in the Protestant church. It tries to make faith everything at the expense of reason or of law. That's not our Catholic faith. It's not scriptural. It's not scriptural. So he says, first, follow the commandments. Go to 19 again, chapter 19. Um, when he tells the man to follow the commandments, he follows it. He says to his disciples, this is about verse 23, I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who can get in? Who's going to be able to... With my weight, there's no way. <laughs> anyway, who can get through a needle's eye? Um, with all men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Let me let me stop here because this is not a small thing for him. I I've, I've mentioned in our works together some of the things that the modern rationalist does. You know, when they de they deal with the uh, feeding of the five thousand, explain the miracle way. They will not allow for a miracle. They will not. It doesn't fit reason. God bless. What what I'm, it doesn't fit an unhealthy reason. I'm trying to protect reason here. It doesn't fit an unhealthy reason. They explain it away. They say everybody had their lunches. They just pulled them out when quite you know. I've heard people say about this passage, well, you've got to understand when he says nobody, you know, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. They explained it by saying that there's this big opening in the Jewish wall. It was called the eye of the needle, and it was much larger so people could fit in and out. It just seems to me that that's doing what I'm saying the modern rationalist does. They're trying, they're trying, wait, wait, wait. They're trying, they're trying to take away a miracle by rationalizing it away. It's not what Christ is saying. What Christ is saying is there, there are things that humans can't do to save themselves, but nothing's impossible with God. Anyway, Mark, you go ahead, because you... The eye of the needle meant a low or a narrow gate, is what the phrase meant way back when. So it's not an actual needle and thread needle. It has nothing to do with miracles. Oh, God. This particular one has nothing to do with miracles. Mark, explain this to me, can you? Uh, well, let's wait, 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 wait. Let me just read it, because I, I want you to get... No, 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 no. I'm saying it's... It, it, there's a lot of... Most people... And I would put a majority of Catholics really don't understand anything about the faith. They really don't. Most people don't even know what the Mass is about. Most people know that the Mass isn't about them. Mark, stay with this, stay with this phrase. Go on, focus okay. on this phrase. The eye of the needle means a low or a narrow gate. That's what it meant in ancient times. 
Okay? It didn't mean needle and thread trying to stick a camel through a needle's eye. That's not what it meant. That's not what he's saying here. Okay? Now, it doesn't take away that it's really, really hard to get into heaven. And that's a nice alliteration maybe to use. Okay? But, but it isn't... To me, he's not talking about miracles here. Yeah. Let me, he's talking about how hard it is to get into heaven. Yeah. But basically, if you have a really, really low gate and a really tall camel, it ain't going to fit. Which just proves my point. I don't want to quibble on this because I think on the fundamental point we're not disagreeing, but I, I want to emphasize it literally the way it is because I think the danger is that people take it away. Um, they're saying, how can a rich man enter the kingdom? And he says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Whether you call it a low point, or I'm going to call it a needle because I love the image and I think it's more faithful to what Christ is saying. The point of what he's saying is this, that um, rich, you know, a rich, that is, Christ is saying, or the, the disciples are saying, these people won't get into heaven, um, no matter how, because the guy has said he's done everything he should. In fact, you know we're going to come to that, not hear it in another gospel, a man's going to approach him and say, what do I have to do? And Christ says, follow the commandments. And the guy says he has anything. And he says, sell everything and give it to the poor. The guy goes away sad. The disciples are coming to see more and more clearly that human beings cannot get to heaven on their own. And it's particularly hard for those who live in the world with a sense of self-sufficiency. Why, if, if you're self-sufficient in the world, why do you need God? Who needs God? That fundamental to Marx's theory. If everybody had enough money, they'd all get along and they wouldn't have religion. For Marx, religion is an opiate. Christ is saying, no, 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 that's not true. Um, there's a danger for human beings because when we feel we're sufficient, we don't need him. And the, um, the disciples are acknowledging this. It's going to be hard for a wealthy man to get into heaven because he has everything the way he wants. And Christ is saying... Um, it will be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And I think he means that literally. Because it can't happen. No, he doesn't. Wait, just like, wait. What he says is what's impossible for man is possible. All things are possible for God. So whatever the impossibilities are for men, we're still asked by Christ to look to God, to look to him. Go ahead, you have a... I was just going to say, he doesn't say... Um, that it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. He says it's easier for a rich man. It's easier for a camel, a camel than, to go right. through the eye of a needle, as in Mark's definition, one of those low, narrow gates. It's easier for a camel to get through than for a rich man to get into heaven. He doesn't say it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. Except it's impossible if for um, a camel to go through an eye, whether it's whether you understand it lowly. Um, Christ goes, wait, wait, just one second. Wait, I'll go, here, I'll give it to you, because you, because the disciples respond to that by saying, then who can be saved? Because they're astounded, because what Christ says is impossible. The whole point... I think the point of this passage is he's making clear following the commandments is important. Doing God's word is important. But um, man can't do this. Man can't save himself. Otherwise there would have been no need for Christ to come to the world. He came to the world to offer something that men couldn't do on, or he would have had no reason 
for coming. He's just reinforcing a central belief of our faith that um, we have to be careful about priding ourselves in what we can do because it's through God's grace that we're saved, um, not through our own actions. But Mark, go ahead, sorry. Okay, there's, there's also a different view. What you're saying is correct, Bob, but it's more of a modern context of what's going on than a historical one. You made reference earlier, and it's throughout the Gospel, of Jesus getting frustrated with the disciples, basically saying, why don't you get what I'm saying? Okay? One of the reasons is that what Christ was saying was light years ahead of any contemporary thought at the time. What he was saying just didn't make sense. It's like trying to explain to our grandparents how an iPad works. They're just not going to get it. Okay? If you look at the typical way things worked at the time, right? Rich people were favored by the gods or whatever god it was. Pharisees, Sadducees were rich because God favored them and their families, blah, 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 blah. Poor people were not favored by God. That's just the way it was. And Christ is saying, everybody you think is favored is not. It's this poor schlob over here who's going to be favored by God, which made absolutely no sense to anybody. I mean, that was just, it was, that was, it was just not possible. Just in the way that the, the mind at the time worked. I'm not saying he's not right, but there's a lot more going on here than what we think about now after 2,000 years of, and great, wonderful men who've thought about this for a long time. Yeah. Thanks. So at the time it was going on, it was so revolutionary, it was breaking people's brains. Yeah. I mean, just, it didn't make sense. So keep that in mind from a, just a historical context of what he's saying. His, it was so far ahead of anything at the time. I know. you. You Yes, yes to the, all of that. I, I've got a thought, but Suzanne had something to hear. Go, Doc. No, nothing other than what I said. Yeah. I just think he's, he's not saying rich men can't get into heaven. He's saying it's really hard, just like it's really hard. There's probably a camel who could get through one of those little oh, gates. Oh, see, I don't, yeah. Um, um, I th yeah, I think, well, let me leave it here. The The only response I want, and I want to make this quick, Mark, because we've got, I've got a, I've got a bet here that I'm, um, the, the only thing that I would add to what you're saying, Mark, is that I think the point here is that Christ is making it clear, I think very clear, in all of the, all of what he's doing, um, people can follow the commandments they should. He's make, or he would have he would have had no reason for coming. He's making it clear that God can do something man can't, and that that's why he's there. It's one of the reasons he's come. And I would only add that 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 what you're saying is true, but but I myself would not confine it to a historical context. For this reason, I think the fundamental point here is that God can do things man can't. That's why Christ is here. It's cent It's fundamental to hold on to that. Man, no matter how good man is by himself, he cannot get to heaven. That's a supernatural gift. All of man's natural gifts will not get him there. So what he was doing was not just revolutionary to his time, Mark, and I'm, I'm a little bit wary of people, who, particularly modern scholars, who want to confine it to historical context. That what he's doing will always be hard. That people will never be able to wrap their mind. It's closer to what you were saying when you said lots of Catholics. I just think lots do. I, I, I would I would be a little bit kinder, but I, I don't want to press this. The point I'm making is that that 
all human beings tend to tend to pride themselves on their abilities and their sufficiency. They think if they do all these things, they'll have a happy life and they'll get along. Christ is making clear that um, that there's something more that um, that man can't get to heaven. Not back then. Not whether they were poor or rich. Not today. Um, that it's only with it's only through what God does that man can get to heaven. That was that's fundamental to our church. That's Saint Thomas. That's our church. That was fundamental to Dante when we started the Purgatorio. Let me go on. Um, oh, here it's twelve. I think I found twelve one eight. Repeatedly, he's while he's teaching them and turning them towards his father and the importance of God and understanding what Christ is doing, he has to clarify the false teachings of the religious leaders. He makes clear, he says, beware of false prophets, those are his words, beware of um, wolves in sheep's clothing. And I remember quoting that to you when we did Flannery O'Connor. Lots of priests, this is from Christ, Lots of priests are wearing sheep's clothing, and we have to be careful because we can be taken in by them, particularly because they're priests. They present themselves as giving the word of God when what they're doing is against him. We know that the scandals in the church in the last 10 years have, have just made that only too clear, but, um, um, but he says, beware of false prophets. He's trying to show people, he's trying to teach his disciples and the people he did it in the opening in the Beatitudes. He's been doing it with the with the with the disciples in the crowds when he's teaching the, through the parables, and he's doing it by answering the Pharisees who constantly test him about their teaching. Um, I I found that passage that I was looking for. It's in fifteen. It's in fifteen. Um, one to ten. At the beginning, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered, And why do you transgress the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? Over and over and over again, what he's saying. I mean, I'm going to put it in human terms. This is my father. He gave these commandments. These are from my father. Later, he's going to say in John, In me you see the father. He's revealing the over and over again. He keeps saying he wants to show the Father. Everything he does is revealing the love the Father sent. He loved his he loved his people so much that he sent his only begotten Son to die for them. Um, here for God. So he answered them, "Why are you transgressing the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions?" For God commanded, "Honor your father and your mother." And he who spoke evil of father and mother, let him surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. He's using whatever he's got in his head to make an excuse for his failure to honor his parents. Christ responds, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. 
So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precept of men. The danger for men is to keep adding precepts to the tradition. That's why the, the responsibility of the magisterium is so heavy. They've got to protect that central tradition because the tendency of men is to keep adding to it. Barbara, I don't want to harp on this, but that's why I used the metaphor I did of, of a minefield. That You know, when you read the readings today, because they're just voluminous, um, people can say lots of things and they can seem genuine. It's just... It's, it's just a, tr it's a tricky, business, tricky business, and it's always been so. This isn't just historical. What Christ is saying is going to be hard for, as hard for people today as it was 2,000 years ago. People are not going to believe in God, particularly if they're wealthy or have ease. So he's repeatedly making efforts to remind people of the importance of the commandment. On, in Act 12, I mean in chapter 12, again verse 1 to 8, chapter 12, um, the Pharisees ask, why, why is he letting the disciples eat on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Um, he entered the house of God and they ate the, um, the bread of the present. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the embodiment of the Sabbath and the Jews don't even see him. And I think the disciples are always struggling to get to him. So repeatedly he's saying, be careful because the tendency of human beings is to let human traditions become excuses for not worshiping God. So I'm going back to one of my original questions. Where are we with our faith? Has the veil fallen over us? Um, it's absolutely... so. First reason, I've just given you, he came for all these reasons. Two, on my outline, it's absolutely essential to see Christ performing miracles, not to take them for granted or explain them away. One of the amazing things about Christ performing his miracles is he's... He, so, we read scripture and understand scripture to be the word of God. How well do we live it? I'm asking that, you know that, I'm asking that seriously tonight. How well do we live it? Um, Christ tells the disciples... If you have, and in anger sometimes, if you had better faith, you could move mountains. He means that. You could heal somebody. You could do something. Do we do that? Are we, are we taking our faith to the world? Are we going to church and living an isolated existence, comfortable in our faith? He's, not, he's asking us not to do that. He performs miracles. He heals. The amazing thing about Christ is when he speaks... It's done. I'm going to say that again. When he speaks, it's done. There's no mediation. None. If we go to a doctor today and there's something wrong with us, the doctor will prescribe medication. 
or surgery, there's a form of mediation. Something has to come between us. He has to do something, give us medicine. When Christ spoke, his word made it happen. He's God making something happen. And he keeps challenging the disciples, where's your faith? If you had faith, in fact, he commissioned them and said, go do this, preach. And he said, cast out demons. Remember in the one instance when they couldn't, he said, this is a special case. It takes more fasting and prayer. He's asking us to fast and pray to increase our powers of discipleship. So it's absolutely crucial to see that his miracles are revealing God at work in the world. What's God is with us? Uh, what's the name? God is. What's God is with us? The, um, what's the name? The Jews. Yeah, God Emmanuel. is. Emmanuel. God is with us. That he's present. I mean, put this in context. The fiat, God's fiat the beginning of our world as we know it, he said something and it was. It came to be. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. When Christ, when Christ casts out demons, he says, get out. And they go. And generally, we know that they know he's the Son of God because they recognize him. So we're watching God do things that man cannot unless they have faith. So he's constantly performing miracles to show the presence of God, um, that God is with them. Um, the third point, it's absolutely crucial to see that hell is real. And I asked the question earlier, how real is hell to any of us? Go back to 5, the very beginning of Matthew. Verse 5, or, or chapter 5, verse 21. Wait, I'm going to, I'm going to, Suzanne mentioned this, so I'm going to cover this while we're here back to the beginning. Christ goes over the Beatitudes, and I won't, I don't go into them all, because I'm assuming you all know them, and, and we could spend a class night on them, actually, but I'm going to choose one just to, to raise a question of how well we understand the Beatitudes, um, the third beatitude, he, he, he's talking to the marginalized. He's basically talking to the people that Mark was talking about, all of these people who are poor or impoverished, who are not a part of that wealthy, established world of the Jewish elite or the Roman court. These are poor people. And he's encouraging them. He's telling them they're blessed. Take this seriously. This is not historical context. This is today. It was yesterday. It was a century. It'll be a true from a century from today if, if the world is still going on. There will always be established powers and there will always be poor. Christ himself says the poor are always with us. He's talking to the marginalized, the poor, and giving them encouragement and saying, you're, you're actually blessed. The people who think they're wealthy and established and settled. He's shocked when the Roman centurion comes to him and says, cure my servant. Says it's, the Jewish people don't even show the faith that this man does. Because most people in their wealth and power don't need God. He's talking to the poor. And he gives these beatitudes. He said, blessed are you for this and this and this and this. 
Um, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those. Th these are the values. I'm going to say this emphatically. These are the values that are absolutely contrary to the values by which the world lives. Be wealthy, be comfortable, secure, be happy. Christ is going, blessed are you, over and over again, for having those things contrary to the values that the world generally espouses. The third one, he says, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I just want to take a second to go over one of them while we hear it back at the beginning. What is Christ saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Most people think he's referring to the poor. Is he? Barbara, go ahead. Um, I think he's referring to people who realize they're in need of him. Wow. Wow, you knocked that out. Holy cow. Here, I thought I was going to have something to tell you guys. <laughs> Come on, Bob, give us a hard one. No, I can't. <laughs> I've you, been struggling with that for a long time. No, I just, well, what happened? Because I think you're absolutely, I mean, you're right on. You're, I mean, it's so, this is not about the poor. It's not about the poor. I mean, where did you get that? Because you're, I think you're right I on it. I some notes oh, somewhere. I, I, what, it was one of my notes, Barbara. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. Um. It makes perfect sense once you know it, but it doesn't make sense until you, I mean, it doesn't mean anything until you get that conversation. Yeah, yeah, good for you. I think we probably covered it too when we did the purgatorio because we went over some of the, but good for you, Barbara. Is that clear to everybody? I mean, it's just reinforcing again one of the underlying themes of what we've been doing tonight. Over and over and over and over again, Christ is asking us to be aware of the Father, that He is never not with us, He is always here. Are we aware of Him? Do we carry Him in what we do? Um, the poor in spirit, the real poverty in our world is those without God. Stop and think about it, would you all for a second? People who are wealthy, who think everything's okay, I mean, in some ways, they're the ones most need of our prayers because they're the ones who think they, the ones who least need God. And Christ, I think, makes it clear here that the greatest poverty is those who don't have Him. They can be wealthy or rich or it doesn't matter. Spiritually, they're going to have empty lives. Um, let's go to hell. <laughs> On that. No, Barbara doesn't want to go. <laughs> no. <laughs> Don't you click off, Barbara. I'm here. I know you are. I know you are. Go to 521. Um, you've heard it said, um, you shall not kill. Whoever kills will be liable to judgment. Um, who's ever, I'm saying, whoever is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, whoever says you fool shall be liable to hell. You fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. Christ could not make it clear. I mean, this, once again, to put this in perspective, he's been doing everything he can to affirm his Father's commandments and ask us to be guarded against the Jewish, the chosen people who follow the commandments with a sense that they're 
righteous, that they're saved, that they're doing what they should be doing. He's making it clear here that those are inadequate. The most important thing is our interior life, who we are inside. That the interior life is far more important than our outward, than our appearances. And I'm trust. I mean, you know that the greatest theme in the literature that we've been reading from the beginning has been this theme of appearance versus reality. That things aren't as they appear. That the most important thing is what's going on inside. But here he says, um, his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool shall be liable to hell. Go to um, chapter 8, verse 11. Um, Truly I say to you, even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom, will be thrown into the outer darkness. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. And these are the chosen ones. They will be in hell. Um, chapter 15. Chapter 15. Uh, Uh-oh, or is it... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Wait, where am I now? I'm lost. Um, chapter 12. I'm just picking, there's lots of them, I'm just picking some of them. Chapter 12, verses 28 and following. The Pharisees accuse him of using Satan to cast out demons. And Christ is saying, how, how, can, I, <laughs> how can I use Satan to cast out demons? Because I would be undoing myself. And um, um, He says about line 25 or so but it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you <coughs> or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and indeed he may plunder his house he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That means some people will be in hell just by that fact, separated from God. They'll, they'll live in a condition of being unforgiven. This is Christ. So set this against the fundamentalist tendency to say, unconditional love, forgive everything, I want to take a minute with this. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven you, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. And then he talks about looking for signs and what an evil generation. But stop for a second. What does Christ mean when he says... A sin against the Son will be forgiven. But the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Mark, hold I want you to hold off on this because I'm, I'm maybe not, but I, I'm assuming you may want to jump at this, but I'd like to hear. Pat, what do you make of this? Do you have any thoughts about this? 
Sorry. Don't, don't. I don't want you. Don't. If you don't, don't. You don't have to. Yeah. Just. Karen, do you have a thought? I know this is going to be hard for you because you're on that beat setting and probably in the sun. And yeah. Well, the note in my Bible says... No, no, from you. Put that note away. From you. Put that note away. Hmm. From your heart and your mind, what is Christ saying? Well, if you join your thoughts with the devil, then you can't be forgiven. Let's keep this in terms of what he says. Put the, I'm going to ask you, if you just put him, I want you to use your mind and your heart. He says, you can sin against the Son of Man. And by the way, you know through the Bible, he often, when he uses the phrase Son of Man, he's often referring to himself both as God and man. Mm -hmm. So we're meant to keep his humanity in mind. Here he says, whoever sins against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever sins against the Holy Spirit will not. Barbara, you have a thought? I really don't know. That's Mark, you have a you wanna jump I'm in? I'm not sure I know what blasphemy is. I mean mm. It's black well, I don't wow. I, does anybody want to, I, I take it as using God against himself so it is the most profound kind of sin you know when the, when, so for example wait hold on for example when, when Christ cures the paralytic or when he does a number of the other cures or in the, in the, in the temple the Pharisees say he's blaspheming he's claiming to be God when he's not so it's usually using God or something holy against itself. So it's the greatest of the sins, in a sense. And, and going as well for Karen, it's like, I, I had to read this one in a note as well, because I use the Didache Bible. And it says, blasphemy against the Spirit. He goes, that phrase, he goes, the sin of attributing to Satan what is the work of the Spirit of God. And that is what that phrase Let's 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 do this. Can can you guys get away from your notes for a second? Just here. Who would what's the relationship between the Son and Father in the Trinity? Let's go to we're, we've got to go to a metaphysical reality here. Because we've got to get to the spirit, but let's start with the Father and Son. What's the relationship of the Son to the Father? It's impossible for humans to comprehend. <laughs> <laughs> say somebody say a prayer for me tonight, please. <laughs> the Son is begotten. This is our creed. This got Mark, we can understand this much. The Son is begotten. He's not created. That's a huge understanding. The world won't get it. The church does. The church is seated in the spirit. It helps us to understand things. We know, and by the way, think about it metaphysically. Don't even go to the, if you thought metaphysically for a moment, if God is I am that am, he's being. He's, there's nothing material about God. He's being itself. When he says I am that I am, for him to conceive of himself means to conceive of an image that is his identical, but it's from him. The Son is begotten. It's the image of the Father when he conceives of himself. 
That's why Christ is called the image of the Father in his likeness, right? Can there be another begotten? No, there can only be one begotten because God has only one concept of himself. There's just common sense. And the church says, so the Son proceeds from the Father, but the Holy Spirit? What? Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Because the Holy Spirit is spirated. He's brought into existence through the love between the Father and Son. So he is love itself. The Son is the concept of the Father. He's knowing. He knows himself. Um, the love between the two of them is the Spirit. That's what gives rise to him. And remember, they are indwelling one with each other. We went through that. Can two be more than one in the Trinity? Can one be less than two? No, they are all one. So the Father is not greater than the Son and Spirit. And the Son isn't less than the Father. They're one. That's why there's one God, three persons. If you thought on a metaphysical plane, you know there's no other way to think about it. So the Spirit is love. Absolute love. Deny that love what happens to a person? They go to hell. I mean, if you deny that, what hope is there then? And, and why, I want to put this as strongly as I can. Why did God come? The Father so loved his children, he so loved us, that he sent his only begotten son, only begotten son, there's no two. He sent him to die. Is there a greater love that man will ever know? If you deny that love, what can God do for you? Wait one second. I'll come back. Wait one second. He who is with me is not against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. God will, because some people are going to mistake Christ, not, you know, he's a guy going around on earth. And, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And I've, I've got four minutes to make my bet. <laughs> Okay, last thing, if you go by my notes, um, it's absolutely crucial then to see hell as real in a world that wants to do everything to deny it. So two of the fundamental reasons why Christ came, if you just go over my notes, one is to make the kingdom real, to help people understand what it was. One of the others is to make real hell, to make clear that people have choices. Um, Matthew ends, he calls everybody to him, he says, believe. I don't want to take any time because what I'd like to do next week is finish up Matthew and we'll start John. So we'll spend a little bit of time winding up Matthew and we'll start John. So if all of you could start John. But at the end he says, just believe. He says to the disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, is having faith enough? goes back to one of my opening questions. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. If you believe in Christ, what does it mean we're supposed to do? Is just believing in him enough? Is that say, I believe in him and that's it? Or are we supposed to do some things? I'm going to leave it that because I'm going to win my bet with Mark here. I've got two minutes. I'm going to leave. God, I'm... I, just oh oh you <laughs> wrong clock, Mark. I've got eight thirty three. Mark set his clock ahead. <laughs> Here I want to leave this question with everybody. Here are my questions. My end, my last question. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to pick up this is where we're going to begin next week. I'd like to start. I'm really serious. I'd like to begin with these questions. I'm pretty serious about this. How well do we read scripture? That was my first question. Do we genuinely? feel that we're in the presence of a miracle when scripture's being read? Has the veil fallen over us the way it fell over the Jews? Are we going through the motions? Are we living our faith? Christ said, if you really have faith, you'll move mountain. He got angry at his disciples, whom he loved, whom he loved. In fact, he loved Peter enough to call him Satan. Get behind me. He wouldn't have been that angry if he didn't love him. How strong is our faith? Um... Do we take the kingdom seriously? Do we take hell seriously? When Christ says, um, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, is it enough just to believe in him, or um, are we being asked to change our lives as well? And if we change them, are we aware of the pull the world has on us and of what the Father and Christ and the Spirit are asking of us? Let me leave it there. Any, any last comments? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave a minute here, even though it means I'm going to lose my bet with Mark. <laughs> any, last, any last comments or thoughts about these questions? Because I don't want to drop, even if it means I lose my bet. Any, any comments on what we've done or questions or observations or... Well. Wait, Mark, can you hold hold on? Pat, did you have something? Uh, the only thing I was going to say is uh, when I read this Bible, I try to read it in what was happening during those times. Kind of what Mark had said earlier. Yeah. As uh, the Old Testament and their traditions. And when you think about that, it's, it's hard to re remind yourself to think about how it was back then versus trying to put it in today's world. Yep. So when yep. I read that's what I try to force myself to think how it was back in those days and why the people felt the way they did and even the disciples didn't understand a lot he was saying. You know, for they sure. didn't understand the parables yeah. or that yep. sort of yep. thing. Yep. So yep. for us to try to understand it's it's not unreasonable to think we don't always know what he's meaning right. for us to Right. Read. No, I agree completely. Pat, I would just add that, because I, I think that's a really good thing to do, but I also think it's, it's always important for us to read them in light of today and apply them today to our lives, because for us to believe in a living gospel, that it's alive, means he, God is speaking to us now in our circumstances. I think what Mark said a while ago about 
you know, this stuff was way over their heads. If you look at the world today, I mean, one of the things that seems to me you cannot miss is that everything that Christ asks is everybody, over everybody's head. I mean, just, you know, Christ isn't widely believed. And I think what happens today is what happens back then is that, I mean, Mark has also raised this question, I think we're called to take Christ to the world knowing, like Jonah, you know, that people aren't going to like what we say. In fact, the typical response today is bigoted, uneducated, superstitious. You belong to a world that we've left behind. Get real. Get relevant. Um, the gospel is not generally popular. So I think, I mean, and, and to put this, I mean, this may sound too literary, but I really believe it, Pat, that the gospel is multi-leveled. St. Thomas would admit that, that there are things going on literally, there are things going on in parables, there are multiple levels, that one of the tasks we have is taking the gospel literally and also seeing its allegorical meanings and how they apply today. And if you do that, I mean, to, to, I, I hope this puts it on its bed. It seems to me if we do that, it's, it's hard to do that without feeling we become connected to people at all times. I mean, it's been one of the purposes of the literature that we've been doing, you know, reading the Iliad to, or Shakespeare, to, or Dost it doesn't matter, Dostoevsky, Faulkner, that we find that we're related to people every age. And the gospel should do that in a preeminent way because it's God speaking to us always, whatever our time, whatever our circumstances. We can be a totalitarian Russian in Russia or Poland or Africa, we're still, we're still supposed to hear God try to live what he's saying, you know, take it seriously. So I think what you're doing is great. Keep it up. Sir? Sorry? Anybody, anybody else? One thing, Bob. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I used to ask my mom about, you know, why are we here, right? You know, purpose of going to church, you know, when you're literally asking. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she goes, you're here to you are here to give glory to God. That is why you are here. You will either glorify his mercy by being granted entrance into heaven, or you will glorify his justice on your way to hell. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. How yeah, yeah. you do that in your life is up to you. Yeah. Right. And that was kind of my mom's answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which she's right. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. And and I really don't think as, you know, we've all grown up, or most of us, I guess, have grown up Catholic. So think of everybody you've ever known in any church, wherever you've lived, right? Most people don't get it. Mm -hmm. They really don't. Yeah. And it's sad um, that we are not here really for each other. We're not here for, for the you know, to make riches. We're not here to make the world, you, you know, go faster or better or whatever, right? We're here to glorify God. That's what we're here for. And that can take a lot of forms, you know. But people, and they never have gotten it, and they never will. And I think the Bible tells us that. You know, Jesus knows this, you know. Uh, just as a people, we're stupid. Um, but, but we are here to glorify and give honor to God. That's yeah. our job. That's it. Let me agree with you and disagree with you again, Mark, if I can take a second. Boy, I hope, 
I don't remember making a price amount, but I'm adding to my loss, whatever it is I'm owing you right now. Um, you remember, I mean, to pick what I, so I want to agree with Mark on one point, to, to glorify God and the choice is real, and I'm so glad that he put it the way he did. We will glorify him by glorifying his justice in whatever goes on in hell. You remember when we did Dante's Inferno at the end, because I, this is not a small point for me, because I think that the tendency for most of us, including myself, and I'm including Mark, <coughs> sorry, the tendency in most of us is to um, identify pity with love when pity's not love. It's not. Pity's an enabling emotion. Feeling sorry for people is an emotion that arrests people. It keeps them there. Love includes pity. We feel sorrow at the misery of others. <clears throat> but pity means we identify with the suffering of others and stop there. Love means we not only identify with the suffering, we enter into them. I mean, we feel bad. <clears throat> hard-hearted people don't do that. People who don't feel pity are hard-hearted, usually. They're, they're, they're not very compassionate people. But pity's not love. Love includes pity because you... You feel a sorrow for the sufferings of others, right? But you go beyond that because your concern is for their good. In pity, we identify with the sufferings of others, so there's a part of us too much included in that act. That's what pity is. There's something selfish in it. That's why it's arresting. It can be an enabling emotion. Love means you act for the good of another, which means you give yourself up. You don't do that in pity. So I hope I'm clear here. People who don't feel pity usually are hard-hearted. They're people who live in their heads who don't feel what they should. Pity identifies with suffering, but it can be arresting. Love means you identify, but you give yourself up. That's the difference. So if you remember at the end of the Inferno, we talked about pity because you, <laughs> you remember when Dante begins with Francesca telling her, she's a woman. It's a woman telling the sad story. Dante faints. You know, it's one of the number of times that he passes out from pity. He does it with Argento when he's crossing the river Styx. Or he's starting to move away. He's starting not to feel so much pity. And at the very end, if you remember, he kicks Baca's head in the ice. And most modern critics see that as Dante participating in the sin. Because like Mark, they don't get it. They're stuck in a world of what they call compassion. The, the modern world will, will think compassion is Christ's love. It's not. It's not. Um, Dante kicks Bosca. And most critics an analyze that by saying he's just showing that he's participating. He's not. What he's doing is actually what Mark was describing. You know, that... He's showing that he affirms God's justice because if he felt pity, as he's learned not to feel in those moments, because all, remember, all these people are in hell, he would be going against God and some goodness that he's trying to work. All those people are there because they chose, not because God put them there. It's one of the fundamental things we saw in hell. They, God didn't put anybody in hell. They put themselves there. Now here's where I'm going to really strongly disagree with Mark, really strongly Mark. 
we're not here for ourselves. I could not, and, and give me a minute before you jump in, Mark. We're not here for ourselves. We are absolutely, absolutely not here for ourselves. Our God is a Trinitarian God. In the three persons of the Trinity, the love between them is perfectly indwelling. They're absolutely one with each other. We've talked about this. To enter into the love of God means to enter into the love of another person, which means risking taking that other person's interior, that other person's sins, those things we don't like about our spouses or our children or friends or neighbors or whoever, we have to risk taking that in in love. Now, does that mean we leave them there? No, because if it does, it means we're enabling. It's a pity and emotion again. So how do we bring Christ's love and justice? And remember, that's the fundamental thing of the gospel. It's not one or the other, the way the fundamentalists have it. We are asked to fulfill justice, to never let it go, in an act of a transcendent love. That's what Christ did. We are not here for ourselves. We are here from God for each other. We are asked to bear each other's sins and moreover, because Christ made that clear, we are asked to take him out to a world that does not get it and not do that because they don't, but do it because they don't. That they need to hear this. Um, if we don't, it's, we're like Job, or I mean Jonah, where <laughs> we don't want to go because people are not going to like us and disapprove of us and... So in, in that respect, I couldn't disagree more, Mark, with you that um, I, I think the first part of you was absolutely right on, but I think the but second part, I wait, let me just, hold on. No, but no, no, you hold on, Mark, Mark, just hold on, I'm, hold on, just that if we're made in God's image and we are Trinitarian, and I'm claiming that we are, we will never complete ourselves here without doing what Christ does with other people. Anyway, there. So, go, Mark. You go ahead. Okay, I. Here. I'm not understanding. I'm not disagreeing with anything that you're saying. So I don't know what I said that you're disagreeing with. That's all. You said we're not here for each other. We're here for to glorify God. That was your. Those were. I was just responding yeah, that's to that. True. Well, I'm disagreeing with that part. Well, no, it's the same thing because you can do that in many manifestations by loving your wife, by loving your kids, by being. A then good you're neighbor. not here. Then you're not here for yourself. Yeah, the whole point right. of what I was saying is we are Trinitarian. It can't be just about ourselves. It has to be what we bring to our relationship no, with other people. You're not here people. for yourself. You're here for God. Here. <laughs> and and God, I know, and God is here. I mean, he, he, he said, I sent my only beloved son to die, and Christ asked us to do the same with him. Let me, if I can, please leave it there. If there are disagreements, let's pick it up. Because I am already... I'm back. I'm back owing you guys more time again when I was trying to be good. Um, all of you have a good week. All of you have a good week. Um, I'm glad to be doing this. You know, we're doing the gospel. We're 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 not doing literature anymore. We're doing something very very different. So there's a degree of seriousness here that I'm trusting all of us. All of us, starting with me, Suzanne that we're taking this, um, everything we've been doing to another level, that we're, we're hearing God speak directly to us. So trying to learn, trying to understand, trying to do what he's asking, all of those things um, give us a greater burden. Christ's words were, 
My burden is light. Let's see if that's true for us. Okay. Next week we'll finish Matthew and we will start John. So let's just plan to spend... <laughs> God. If Mark, if you'll make another bargain or another bet with me, I'll see if I can't win my money back. Bob, we've been with you long enough, we get it. Okay. Oh, oh, I'm trying, I'm trying. Thanks for the patience. I'll see you have guys. Have a good week. Thanks. All of you guys have a good week too, okay? Bye. 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 Bye.